0: This is a Hot Pie Media Original. Very recently, I've started, actually, I was exploring the Apple tracking functionalities for ideas for experimental stimuli. And I looked at my heart metrics and my step count, Uh and it was way lower than my, you know, naive beliefs about how much I was walking. And even I, who really understand that this is not what I need to be focusing on. I just need to go out for walks periodically. I don't need to like mm-hmm. look at the numbers. I still check it now. And so, mm-hmm. and I, and all it does is make me feel bad. You know, most days it makes me feel bad, not good.
1: Hi everybody. This is Dr. Eric Corum, founder of AIM-7. And this is The Blueprint. I've spent my life helping Olympic gold medalists, NFL, and NCAA athletes be the best at their craft. Now I'm taking that experience and translating it into your life. This podcast is for busy professionals and household CEOs who care deeply about their family, career, and their health. There's an ocean of content to wade through, but I do the heavy lifting for you and distill cutting edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your busy lifestyle and goals. Jordan Edkin is an Associate Professor of Marketing at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. Jordan studies goals, how people set them and pursue them, and their effects on motivation, performance, and well-being. Her research tackles questions like how does motivation to pursue a goal change over time? And how does the way goals are structured impact their pursuit? How does perceiving a conflict between goals affect people's judgment and behavior? And how does goal striving impact well-being? Most recently, Jordan studied how quantifying aspects of behavior, like counting steps, influences how much people enjoy and do those activities. In this episode, we discuss her research on self-quantification and how it impacts our activities, simple tactics for accomplishing goals, and some surprising research on how setting limits for screen time can backfire. But now, please take one second and smash the subscribe button on whichever listening platform you are joining us on, as this is one of the best ways you can support the podcast. But before we get to my discussion with Jordan, imagine a team of world-class coaches and scientists focused only on you and your wellness goals. These experts know exactly what you need today because they know precisely what your mind and body are ready for. That kind of guidance is now available to everyone. AIM7 is a wellness app that provides custom exercise recommendations to improve the outcomes of programs and workouts you already love. It unlocks existing data from wearables and other apps to provide empathetic and scientific guidance that's perfectly in tune with your mind and body. Your team of world-class coaches and experts are ready to get started. To get early and free access to this exclusive program, go to www.aim7.com. That's A-I-M-7.com and sign up now. There are limited spots available each month, so sign up now and reserve your spot. But now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, really excited to have you. I found you by reading an article that you wrote on um, content consumption and like spending time on screens and how like setting limits on that can actually like work against you. was, I thought, was really fascinating. Before we dig into that, could you provide our listeners with a little bit of insight on your background and your area of research?
0: Yes, thank you for having me. I'm excited uh, to be um, on the podcast today. Um, I am an associate professor of marketing at uh, Duke University in the Fuqua School of Business. I've been here for about 10 years now. Um, uh, I did my PhD at the University of Maryland um, in consumer psychology and marketing, um, my research really focuses on the intersection of the two, so I'm very interested mm-hmm. in um, the psychology of people's goals and motivational processes, including things like time management and goal conflict, um, but thinking about these challenges in the context of choices, decisions, behaviors that people enact in their daily lives. Um, so sort of the topics that might relate a lot to psychology, um, thinking about you know, goal processes, but how people actually act on those things, um, which brings in that marketing perspective.
1: So, what got you interested in this?
0: So I um, did some research as an undergraduate at the Wharton School. Um, and that really sparked my interest in this career path that you could spend your life, you know, studying questions that you find interesting and using a variety of empirical tools and methodologies to, you know, bring scientific rigor to our understanding of, of topics like goals and motivation. Um, And then from that, um, at the same time, I also had this experience where I was getting certified as a personal trainer. Um, And as part of that was thinking a lot about designing workout programs for people. Um, And that, you know, that's, that's a lot about motivation um, and uh, design and particularly with this like program design focus, You know, how can I combine activities and structure people's experiences and help them manage their time? You know, thinking about stimulation, engagement, boredom, effort, rest, um, and pulling a lot of that together from a very um, applied perspective. And so I think that gave me an interesting way of thinking about some of these um, concepts and ideas that I had been exposed to in research as an undergrad and then eventually in graduate school.
1: Super fascinating. Um, I'm going to have to talk to you a little bit about the world later on. I think offline about what I've been doing because I didn't, I didn't have that little nugget of information uh, that's really, really interesting. So the article that I read was about consumption of basically content and how if you set a limit like, okay, I'm only going to view an hour today, that actually people end up viewing more and it can like backfire on them. Could you explain why that is? Because to me, that's completely, it was a little mind blowing.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So um, this has been a really fun project. It's now um, in the peer review process at one of our uh, marketing journals, our leading marketing journals in the field. Um, And this was inspired by some collaborators observations about their own behavior. You know, everyone struggles with spending time on social media and consuming other online content, whether they know it or not, they're struggling with it and managing their behavior. And um, she had become aware that she was spending more time on Instagram in particular than she thought was appropriate, given Mm. um, what one should be doing in one's work day, especially as an academic. And so she set a time limit on that application in particular and observed that after she had done so, she was actually spending more time, not less. And so we started thinking about why, what happens when you set a time limit and came to this idea that time limits are in some ways, their permission, they're a blessing. Um, what, they, what they implicitly do is they signal to you that any time under that amount is perfectly fine. So if your limit is an hour, 59 minutes, even an hour on the doubt, you don't have to worry about spending that amount of time at all. You don't have to feel bad about it. You don't have to try to exert self-regulation, change your behavior. If your limit is three hours, right? Then, you know, two hours and 45 minutes also seems perfectly fine because you've already established this threshold at which your behavior becomes problematic. And so part of what we've thought about uh, what that does is that in contexts where there's some other valuable use of your time, think like the workday. You know, you mm-hmm. could be, you know, doing sort of productive work related to your job, related to your personal interests, related to your family or personal obligations and responsibilities, and instead you're, you know, online browsing social media. And so, particularly in these contexts where there is an opportunity cost to your time which should put pressure downward pressure on your media consumption in those contexts. In particular, we expected that having this kind of permission, this, um, you know, lower psychological costs associated with consumption would actually lead people to do more, not less.
1: Huh. So what's your solution to this?
0: I actually, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing for consumers as long as you understand how it works uh-huh. So if you set a time limit with the idea that this in and of itself, any time limit will help you restrict your behavior, our findings suggest that's not the case. Um, in particular, we also find there's like a, an important insight or nugget here that people also tend to set generous limits for themselves. Uh-huh. So if I'm thinking about setting some sort of limit or restriction on my behavior, I don't really want to feel restricted. And so I tend to push that limit up which then leads me to do more than I may have otherwise done. And so, so yeah, go
1: ahead. like one hour, you said like one hour earlier. And I'm thinking, yeah, most people will go, yeah, one hour. And now you start thinking one hour of your waking day you're going to spend on social media. When you start thinking about it like that, it's rather frightening um, and wasteful. Unless it's your job. And there are some people that's like literally their job is to create content and that's how they make a living. And I can understand that. But for most of us, it's just scroll. And now some of these, I know, I know in different countries, they literally like, will shut you off. But I know in some instances now they're telling you, Hey, you've been on the platform for this long. People are like, yeah, yeah, I just keep going. Um, so do you have any suggestions for people that do want to limit their social media consumption?
0: Yeah. Set low limits and make them enforced. So um, these like blocking options are really important, I think. Um, And we've also found in some of the like uh, studies that we've run for that project that, Unfortunately, if you know you're going to be blocked once you hit your limit, you're even more likely to set a high limit um, to avoid to, you know, to give yourself some buffer or flexibility. And so people really have to counteract that tendency um, Mm -hmm. to set generous limits, um, especially when they're binding. I also think that it is appropriate to have limits that are not constant across all days of your week Uh um, or even all times of your day. For example, it might not be wasteful to look at social media while you're on a train commuting home at the end of the day. That might be a very reasonable use of your time.
1: Or while you're on your exercise bike.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so it would be, I hope that the capacity is there, the capabilities are there. Um, And so it would be nice to see opportunities to set sort of these customized limits either to day of the week or time of the day or, or activity in particular. Um, And that would allow people, I think, to to extract some of the value and enjoyment from these activities. I mean, we wouldn't Uh do them if we wouldn't get anything out of them, Um, but also not have that guilt, time-wasting, you know, objective and subjective experience.
1: Okay. So we would kind of bring up something interesting here, multitasking Um, while you're on the train, looking at social media, is multitasking good? Is it bad?
0: So there's been actually there's an interesting new article um, in the Journal of Consumer Research that looks at such specific situations where multitasking is good. it's called I mm-hmm. think tangential immersion. And I think it's a it's a very nicely made point, which is that when your you know focal activity does not require your full attention and in fact, it's kind of tedious, such that if you gave it your full attention, you would get bored and give up like the exercise bike example, potentially, right. or, you know, treadmill. And in those cases, it actually can be very helpful to like, let your mind be somewhere else while your body is doing a different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the the situations where multitasking can be helpful for people is where one task requires mental attention um, and one does not. I think when both require tasks require mental capabilities, mental effort, that is where you see these negative impacts.
1: Huh. That makes sense. I mean, sometimes it's good to have a distraction if you're doing something painful or like listening to music while you're exercising or a podcast. Uh, the only thing about the podcast I found is I end up having like re-listen to the podcast because I'm like, OK, I'm pushing hard. Oh, wait, wait what did that person say? And then you're going back. But um, that's really interesting. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Do you have so something I've been very fascinated with and I've had a lot of different guests on about is. Behavior design because earlier you said downward pressure, and really you're talking about different people have different terms for it. fuel and friction, um, different terminology for the things that are going to prevent us from taking action, things that promote action. Do you have like an overarching framework for this? Is like for goal seeking behavior, and more specifically, the role that motivation plays in that?
0: So, I do I have a specific framework? I have some philosophies. Let's go. go.
1: Um, <laughs> you're, you're a PhD. You get to philosophize. <laughs>
0: um, so motivation is a resource that is finite and depletable. And yes. so to me, when we start thinking about strategies for effective self-regulation, you have to think beyond motivation and structuring environments and using Time management strategies, physical space alignments and layouts, ways to sort of allow you to pursue goals and engage in valued activities that don't rely on any type of internal willpower or motivation type of force.
1: Because right now, I mean, here we are. What is it? January 14th. I think it's by January 17th or 20th, 60 something odd percent of people that created new year's resolutions will have quit, especially in the diet and fitness related um, space. I read a paper out of the UK where it was these people that make these resolutions are making the same resolution year after year and roughly two thirds quit. And it's because they're super jacked up and motivated. And then like the motivation goes away and then they, and so what it sounds to me like is if we're trying to seek goals, we need to set up our environment or situations where it lends itself to meet, getting to whatever we want to in a more accessible way.
0: Yes, I actually, I've thought a lot about the, the sort of New Year's resolution problem and have some ongoing research that looks at how people's preferences for the way to pers- the way they want to pursue goals don't actually serve their best interests. And in particular, we think about this, you know this translation problem of how do you have an ambitious goal but actually translate it into day-to-day actions that you can take to kind of keep you on track. And when people do this translation process, they end up selecting what we call means, but they're just strategies, approaches. You know the diet plan you choose, the exercise regimen you choose, that are way too much for them to actually sustain. You know so you don't cut. You know you don't drop to a 1,800 calorie a day diet. You try the 500 calorie a day juice purge or something, um, which is never going to be something that becomes a habit, right? Part of your day-to-day life or lifestyle.
1: I don't even know if that's healthy.
0: It's not healthy. And that's kind yeah. of, it, it's effective. And it, you mm. know, if you just think about calorie deficit, it seems potential. Those are big air
1: quotes on around effective, by the way. For <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, it, it, it's just based on calories in calories out. Sure. It's, appears to be like the math is in its favor yeah but but yes the point of sort of the work that i'm doing on this is our understanding of efficacy needs to not just depend on that math but also on Uh what is sustainable
1: okay i uh i have a friend that every year he does this fast for like five to seven days and then it's like oh quick weight loss and this i'm just like "Ah, i wish you could just like pick something that's just very sustainable, something tiny and just start with that. And then once that thing you move from be conscious behavior to unconscious habit, then like pick the next tiny little thing. And I think people just have these massive, you know, I'm going to work out every day. And I'm, gonna, I'm like, no, it's not even even when I worked with the lead athletes, like we didn't do that that is a recipe for burnout. Like when we were training an athlete, like four years later for an Olympic competition, you have to pick a sustainable path. And then the athlete and the coach have to basically agree on it. And then there has to be fluidity in this process because life happens and it's going to be very difficult to accomplish goals. If you, if you're just, if you're trying to rely on motivation and the, and the, and the, and the actions are way too outsized. Um, something that I'm very interested in. I spent my career, you know, as a sports scientist early on, pioneering the use of tracking technologies with athletes. But now, with my company Aim Seven, we pull in all sorts of data from all sorts of wearables and, and health data sources. Very interesting. You and I had a little like a little email exchange about personal quantification and how it affects, affects the way that we engage in activities. I am really interested in hearing about this. I'm glad you brought it up. So oh, I'm I'm fascinated. Go ahead. I want to learn.
0: Yeah, so this is along with sort of time tracking, um, activity tracking, right? Behavioral tracking is something Mm -hmm. that I have been very interested in, very wary of, um, as given my sort of background in psychology and motivation science. And in particular, why I worry about it is because I think that people's relationship with tracking becomes more about maximizing output and less about the reason they are doing the behavior in the first place like how the behavior itself is valuable to them whether it's something that they enjoy um, like a hobby um, or something that maybe is contributing to some other important goal in their life you know you're reading um, to learn something in a school environment or to be up to date with current events so maybe you don't like reading the newspaper but it's you know instrumental to some other goal you have and numbers that have this powerful impact on people and so you start giving people numerical feedback on behaviors that they have either never thought much about or um, had never been able to quantify before and now all you can think about is the quantification and so I think that giving people numerical feedback has this very powerful transformative effect on how they engage and experience activities and in a way that's not always beneficial. It can be like, I think the elite athlete context for sure beneficial, but for everyday Joes and Janes who, you know, need to get some physical activity, tracking something like steps can make walking more about, you know, maximizing step count and less about your health and less about your enjoyment and getting fresh air, being outside, um, the more subjective experiential aspects of that activity.
1: High performance isn't just reserved for elite athletes and those with unlimited resources. In my free newsletter called Adaptation, I provide you with curated information and resources to improve your health, well-being, and performance. I cover topics like sleep, stress, exercise, nutrition, and mental performance. You can sign up today for this free newsletter at www.erickcorum.com. Now, back to the show. I could not agree with you more. Um I actually, you know, 10,000 steps is a complete lie, by the way. No scientific literature to support it. The The literature does say that 7,000 is kind of like, just, just, this is like a, something that I just really, it, you know, the story behind 10,000 steps.
0: Yeah. It's a Japanese something. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: recent literature says 7,000 steps is like, kind of like the the tipping point for health. The whole point is, is people just need to know like what moves the needle, and if they need to get to that point, that's okay. But you shouldn't be held captive to an artificial number. Uh, the literature is also pretty clear that you know the more you move, the longer you live. Um, but I'm I'm in total agreement in that people aren't like okay, why am I doing this behavior? And then if this is the thing that I need to do, having some type of metric is good, but making sure that metric is realistic. And 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 it's a stepwise fashion with what's what's a, what's a, what's a, what we're capable of doing. There's a really cool article I have to send you that just came out in the Frontiers of Physiology, and they used a commonly worn wearable tracking device, and they showed that. And we've known this for a long time in sports because we were ten years ahead of the curve, and so everything that I started experiencing seven years ago is what people are starting to see now. But data alone does a very poor job of changing long-term behavior. What they're finding and what they're demonstrating now is that if you want to change long-term behavior, whatever data you have, it needs to come with personalized behavior modification, uh, dynamic educational content, feedback, and then progressive goal setting. And so essentially you need a construct for the data. You need to start with what you want to do then like, okay, now I want to track this one thing. And like, once like we're going to implement this in a stepwise fashion, would you agree or disagree with that?
0: I certainly think that any tracking should be guided by the goal of the tracking. Um, And so, you know, I have been interested in when people, people are very curious about numbers. And so when they Mm -hmm. kind of fall into tracking something that they don't actually have, output, you know, performance-related goals for. Um, And so Mm -hmm. in my research, I've looked at enjoyment of activities that are tracked or not tracked and find it goes down um, as people focus more on how much they're doing and less Mm -hmm. on their experience of what they're doing. Um, And so I think that in context, but, you know, on the other hand, goal monitoring, you know, keeping track of progress, benchmarking, all of those are very important activities in goal pursuit context. Mm. And so I do think tracking can play a role, but to your point, it needs to be organized in support of some goal. And you need to understand what the relevant thresholds are um, as far as creating progress towards that goal.
1: Uh, I'm just curious. Do you track anything?
0: You know, it's very funny. I have, I have issued tracking for, from the beginning, we um, in my household, one my, either my husband or I was gifted a Nike fuel band, you know, yeah,
1: whatever. That doesn't exist anymore. Exactly.
0: Right. <laughs> you know, it's probably 14 years ago, maybe more than that. Um, and I remember, first of all, trying to figure out what a fuel point was, which no one ever, no one ever did, right? The, the black box of fuel points. And secondly, I remember walking into a a room in our house late in the evening one night and he was, my husband was wearing it and swinging his arm around trying to get more fuel points before the end of the day. And it drives me
1: nuts. This
0: is crazy. I'm not interested. (laughs)
1: Like the, the people that want to close their rings. And so they're running in their living room. Yeah. There's a good and a dark side to all of this. Um, and I think that, you know, when I was early on, um, when we started using athlete tracking devices in American football, I went to Australia to learn about it, brought the tech to the US. And uh, when we first started looking at all this data, most people were like, well, the coach was like, well, who's working the hardest? I'm like, oh, that's not good. What we want to know is like, what is the game? And then how do we train for it better? And then how do we prevent injury? And, you know, and I've seen people just, I'm going to use this term bastardized. The use of the data, it's actually hurt people. And um, it was one of my earliest concerns is that the there would be no constraint around athlete wearables in context of sport. And we've seen that throughout the years. And now you see the same thing with people as they, you know, that they get frustrated with their Apple watch rings. And I'm like, well, why don't you just change them? You know, you can like dial it back to something that's realistic. And like, ah, I mean, it's the standard settings. And it's like, gosh, like they're, they're all good things. Like you need to stand more. Yes. Research shows that sitting is very bad for you. Long, long duration sitting. Yeah. You need to move more and yeah, we need to sleep more, but maybe the only thing you need to work on right now is just getting an extra hour of sleep and that's it. And don't worry about anything else.
0: It's interesting to me because I agree with you that all of those, like those are the keys to health, right? Yeah. Sleep movement, water, whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But rather than giving people these numerical targets, I wonder if you know health tech or fit tech could really just give you reminders, like, "Hey, it's been an hour and a half since you've stood up. Consider standing up." So, managing Apple does manager, that. They give you a reminder, but they also then count how many minutes mm. you've been standing. So they do these some things that I think provide these perverse um, incentives in some ways, where they and they also detach the behavior from the health goal that it serves. Hmm. And so I don't know if you need to count. I don't know if you need to count the number of minutes you spend standing every day versus just remind people to stand up.
1: Hmm. I'm interested to see what your research finds as far as like, you know, I think it'd be interesting to, to study which intervention works the best in the long run. You know, there's so many Factors that go into this too, the education that's involved with it, but I think that would be really interesting because that would then, um, it would give the it would I mean these people, I think a third of people that buy a device stop wearing it after six months because there's innately something wrong, and it could be what you're talking about. It's how it's used. Um, so um, let's kind of become the
0: source of stress, right? They become like yes. I. So you would ask me if I track. Very recently, I've started, actually, I was exploring the Apple tracking functionalities for ideas for experimental stimuli, and I looked at my heart metrics and my step count, Uh and it was way lower than my, you know, naive beliefs about how much I was walking. And even I, who really understand that this is not what I need to be focusing on, I just need to go out for walks periodically, I don't need to, like, Mm -hmm. look at the numbers, I still check it now, and so, Mm -hmm. and I... And all it does is make you feel bad. You know, most days it makes me feel bad. Not
1: good. That's a design flaw. I agree. Because like there's other gauges in life that we use. We have a bank account, you know, and we have to go in and check with the, you know, how much cash we have in there. Now it could always make you feel bad. If you have a little But, but the point is you don't want to go in the negative because then you're going to get charged. We have a, we have a, uh, we have a dashboard on our car so that we know when to change the oil. I think that there's a flaw in how this stuff is given to people and it, it needs to be more customized and more to like, what is the, pr- the, the primary thing that you want to improve, need to improve and then let's teach you and do it in a way that's communicated to you. Cause like an, at an elite level, we would have, a strength conditioning coach, a sports scientist, a nutritionist, a psychologist, everybody would be there working with you. And then the message and everything was crafted for you. And so right now it's one size fits all. So, um, I'm very interested to see like where you go with this, because there's not a lot of people that study how this is used. It's just like tracking and then like some outcome. Um, uh, Let's talk about like reference points. I noticed that you'd written, done some literature, done some research on how goal specificity shapes motivation, and like how reference points impact goal-directed behavior. What like what is that, and how can we use that?
0: Sure. So, um, so this sort of line of research is interested in understanding how the types of goals that people set. Mm-hmm create different numbers, um, different locations of salient reference points or Mm -hmm. comparison standards that we use to then evaluate our behavior. And so the sort of traditional typical goal is walk 10,000 steps, right? We call that a specific goal that gives you a Mm -hmm. very explicit um, future point against which to compare any amount of steps you've taken. The 10,000 becomes Mm -hmm. that reference point. But we have other goal structures available in our sort of arsenal of goal setting. Uh, things like "do your best" or sort of non-specific goals, "walk as much as you can," mm-hmm. um, and even potentially range goals, which would be walk you know, seven to nine thousand steps a day. And I've been interested um, in the collaborators I've worked with in some of the motivational impacts, especially dynamic motivational impacts of these different reference point structures with our typical forms of goals. And so there's a very powerful, well-documented um, finding or behavioral pattern where with a you know 10,000 type of goal, as you get closer to it, you accelerate your efforts. So compared to someone who's walked 1,000 steps so far today, someone who's walked 9,000 steps is going to be more motivated to reach 10,000 because they're mm. closer to it. Um, and so if you think about these notions of these, you know, gradients as you approach a reference point, it suggests that range goals actually may be particularly valuable in helping people avoid early frustrations and early, you know, experiences of a lack of progress and therefore giving up because you can allow sort of multiple of these gradients um, and, Potentially, that could be a way to help keep people motivated. So I have some findings that if you think about a 10,000 step goal that if you actually give people a range goal of eight to 10,000 steps, they're more likely to get to 10,000 steps than people that you just give a goal to hit 10,000 steps.
1: I love it. This makes total sense. Now you're meeting the person where they're at. And it's also dangerous. So, in your early studies to be a personal trainer, I'm sure one of the things you learned about was periodization. And there are pretty strong rules or heuristics you can follow around like whenever you apply like increased training volume, you do not want to increase it more than 10% per week. And so, you could, in, in if you start running, let's say like, you know, you don't want to go from one to five miles three times a week, like you are going to get injured, like you can just book it literature is very strong on this. So why would you do that? Even with walking, you're going to get burnt out sleeping, like try to get 20 more minutes and teach somebody how to do, it. I think this is brilliant. I'm excited. So do you have papers like research studies in the pro- in process right now?
0: Yeah. So there's a published paper that looks at some of the benefits of do your best goals and particularly <laughs> for, early motivation, like early stage motivation. So just getting someone to do something. Um, And the logic there is when you don't have an end state to aim for, all you have is to compare against is doing nothing. (laughs) So, you know, if I have no, you know, if I'm not thinking about 10,000 steps, I'm just thinking about walking as much as I can. Then every time I walk, I get to compare that to my, you know, counterfactual of zero, um, mm-hmm. and feel good about it. Um, and so, actually, as it turns out, in the beginning stages of a goal pursuit process, uh, being able to compare anything to nothing is psychologically valuable. <laughs> this is probably not shocking to you. Um, and so, that paper is published. Um, the ones on range goals and these like multiple gradients and sort of the value of multiple, you know, built in. And state reference point targets, uh, that is work in progress.
1: Awesome. So like in kind of closing, like if, for people that are pursuing goals, if you kind of had just a few rules of thumb for them, like, what would you say? I've got a, I've got a new goal to read more. Let's just pick that. Cause it's not health related. Okay. Um, what would you suggest? Like what are a couple of rules of thumb that anybody can apply?
0: Great. Um, Block the time for it on your calendar. So, um, you got to create cues that will encourage you to do the thing and time that you are able to give to it. So, perhaps, you know, and there are, you know, easier opportunities and less easy opportunities. Right before bed, probably an easy opportunity for something like reading. So, just getting that a little sooner. And there you have your 20 minutes to read a day, you know, or you get up a little earlier and you read with breakfast or, or a cup of coffee, something like that. So pick times and put it on your calendar. I also think focusing on doing enough and not always doing more is important. So this sort of, you know, people have talked about hedonic treadmills for a long time, that every time you have something, you just want more and more and more. I think that's true with goal-directed behavior also, where, Once you get used to reading 15 minutes a day, now you want to read 30 minutes and then an hour and then you spend five hours a day reading. And is that really the best use of your time Um, or how you want to be spending your time? So I think focusing on, you know, how much do I really want or need to do of this activity, whatever it is, rather than falling into the cycle of always trying to do more and do better. And then the final thing I would say is, you know, use your external environment. Um, So, you know, this could be simple things for the reading example. Put the book on your pillow or, you know, on your kitchen table. You see it. There it is. And you go do it. Um, uh, It could be for dietary things. Don't buy cookies. Like, it's amazing how little junk food you can eat when it's not in your house. Um, so I think, you know, not relying on willpower, outsourcing some of the self-regulation to the environment is another thing that I think is, is helpful for building good habits.
1: I love that. My wife and I were just emptying out the pantry and she had this like 10, somebody had sent us these wonderful pecans for the holidays. And it was like all these different flavors and it was like probably 30% of it left. And she's like, what do we do with this? I'm like, uh, time to go. You know what I'm saying? Like get it out of the house. Um, I think that's wonderful. Jordan, um, how can people find you, follow you, like get resources that you're creating?
0: Yes. So um, again, again, part of uh, a result of what I study, I try to stay offline.
1: (laughs) So um,
0: it is not easy to find me on Instagram or on LinkedIn. Um, However, you can find me at Duke's website um, and my Duke email address is up there, as well as lists of articles and current projects and collaborators. And so that is probably the best place to find me and learn about what I am working on.
1: We'll, we'll add that to the show notes so people can go down there and click on it and, and check out the papers that you've written and what you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was phenomenal.
0: Thanks, Erica. Had a great time. Thank you.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, check out episode 53 with Matt Waller. Matt is the author of Start at the End and is a world-renowned behavior scientist. In this episode, he details how to create processes to let you continually act on your initial motivations. Thanks for joining us today. And I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes
0: and all of our other Hot Pie Media originals, baked fresh daily, at our home online at HotPieMedia.com, the Hot Pie Media YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts.